If it was normal English, I would expect to see the word love five times. If I see it 30 times, then maybe something interesting is going on here. Data Stories is brought to you by Click, who allows you to explore the hidden relationships within your data that lead to meaningful insights. Let your instincts lead the way to create personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards with ClickSense, which you can download for free at click.de slash datastories. That's Q-L-I-K dot D-E slash datastories. Hey everyone, Data Stories number 62. Hey Moritz, how are you? Good, how are you Enrico? I'm good, 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 good. So we had a nice meetup in uh, New York City. That yeah, was great. Yeah, true. So I've been a week in New York and we, we used the chance to meet some of our listeners. That was great fun. And we did a few like live charts about the, the audience demographics and a few questions we had for them. So it was good. That was good. We should post some of these pictures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still need to match them with the questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We should. We can put a few in the in the post. That's yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think we have to thank Visualized for organizing that. Yeah. That was and of awesome. course, everyone for uh, participating. That was for fun. Coming. Yeah, yeah. We, we should do it more often. <laughs> so today we talk about visualizing text. And uh, I think we've been trying to organize this kind of episode for a very long time. And from I'm very day happy one, basically. From day one, basically. <laughs> and it's surprising that we never really um, had such episodes. And I'm really happy to have Chris Collins on the show. Hi, Chris. How are you? Hi, Enrico. Hi, Moritz. I'm great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. So Chris uh, is... Um, Uh, is an assistant prof are you a, still a system professor or associate I professor? am assist <laughs> assistant professor as of now but I handed in my um, tenure application just a few weeks ago so wow. you can uh, I'll send this episode to the provost to see what <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, so he's an assistant professor at the University of Ontario in Canada and he directs a lab that is called via lab visualization for information analysis and uh, um, and one of the main expertise, um, of Chris is text visualization. So I'm, I'm really happy to have him on the show. Um, so Chris, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and your lab, of course? Sure. Yeah. So um, I've been working in this area now for probably, I guess, almost 10 years since I started my doctoral studies. I originally came from the area of computational linguistics. So I started my master's studies at the University of Toronto in computational linguistics. I was really interested in things like uh, expert systems and conversational agents, Siri type of stuff. Uh, and then um, sort of got a side interest in human computer interaction. And, and I guess Growing up, playing with there was a there was an old program called Eliza where you would sort of type to the computer and it would answer you. You'd say, "How are you feeling?" and you'd say, "I feel like a tree," and it would just mirror you back and say, "Why do you feel like a tree today?" So, so I mean, those kind of the promise of those kind of things got me interested in computational linguistics. But the it really is a really heavily heavily mathematical area if you really want to do work in that area. And there's a lot of work that's happening where it's just about finding the next 1% improvement in the language translation or the speech recognition or whatever it happens to be. So I turn my eye towards interactive um, elements of that field and met uh, Sheila Carpendale, actually, who is my co-supervisor for my doctoral studies. And with uh, Sheila and Gerald Penn, who is in the computational linguistics, we put together this program of research in the area of what we called uh, visual text analytics at that time. And it was really um, about bringing forward uh, 
under, new new ways to understand and investigate language with visualization um, and with interactive visualization. So so that's where I got started. Um, over the years, I've moved more towards the HCI, human-computer interaction and information visualization research, but certainly still trying to keep abreast of what's happening in the natural language processing community and using the latest latest tools there. So most of the theme of the research in my group right now is related to text, text and document data. And lately, we've been also working with things like um, text plus other data, so mixed mixed data sets, as well as new new ways to interact with that. So looking at uh, multi-touch interaction, tabletop and wall displays and that kind of stuff uh, as, as it applies to uh, text and document visualization. Great. So I want to start with some kind of definitions. Um, so what is text visualization? So if you had to define text visualization and how is it different from other visualizations? How is it different from visualizations of other data types? Well, of course, some of the, some of the, the challenges that exist uh, are the same. So when we talk about information visualization, we generally think about uh, the uh, field as being data that doesn't have a, a, a natural spatialization, right? So you have a map, you know where things are. When you have text, you don't really have that information. So it's, it's a uh, unstructured information, but I would, I would actually call it semi-structured information because there's certainly an order to the way that the text flows, uh, and that can play into the way that you visualize it. There's sometimes really structured metadata that goes along with the document. So for example, when we work with court case information, we have argumentation back and forth between individuals. We also have the name of the case, the date, all this other information. So so it's a kind of like s- sequential and also semi-structured uh, data type that uh, brings up some really interesting challenges. Uh, it's also interesting in that it's uh, quite varied. So even if we're just talking about a single language like English, the data elements could be every word in the language. Whereas if you're talking about something else, you may not have as many different kinds of data elements. So uh, it's pretty challenging um, to try and fit things like 70,000 words uh, of vocabulary into a view and make it still readable. So I think there's also legibility challenges that come into play that make it really interesting for, from a design point of view. Um, on the back end, it requires some additional specialized skills in terms of how to manipulate the data. So uh, there are, I'm happy to say there are more and more available tools for doing text processing. Uh, but it, you do need to, if you want to really get into it, you need to understand a little bit, I think, about how it's working in the back end. So things like deciding um, or automatically annotating the text to decide what's the different parts of speech. Maybe you only want to look at the nouns or the verbs. Uh, things like being able to segment the text into different topics. Uh, these are interesting uh, challenges that come up and require some understanding of nat- natural language processing. Um, I don't know. I can keep going on. <laughs> uh, the, you know, from the, some of the challenges that arise uh, that I think are interesting moving forward in this field are, for example, how do we uh, blend in additional kinds of data. So one of the projects I'm working with right now is looking at uh, text plus user-generated art. So people create um, art images and then they label them and then talk about them. How do we relate the actual content of the artworks to the text and visualize those two things together? So um, bringing in um, additional kinds of data and linking it, I think, is a really interesting challenge. Yeah. Um, it applies across many different fields of application. So I've done work in education, in legal studies, in social network analysis, in um, big areas. Digital humanities, of course, is an area of interest for me. Uh, things like poetry analysis, novels, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's true that, I mean, when we say text visualization, it's so varied. 
there are so many sub branches that you can look into and um it's very very interesting and, and it's uh, really hard i think we should mention really that too yeah. chris probably wouldn't but, but i think yeah, it's exactly. extremely hard because i mean if you take it literal like visualizing a text you know like the sequence of of letters or words I mean, that's fairly trivial, right? You can, like, you know, visualize the length or the, the sequence of, of strings. But what we're after is, of course, the content, right? And, mm -hmm. and the bar there is, I think, very high in that as humans, we can parse a text effortlessly and, like, look through the text into the content, right? And, yeah. and then we expect the machine, of course, to do the, the same thing for a successful text visualization. This, this can be quite challenging, I, I could mm -hmm. imagine, right? So I think there's been, a, I agree with you there. I think uh, one of the things that we have to remember is that text is very rich in meaning. And when we take the words out and put them in isolation, they sort of lose their meaning. Mm -hmm. So take the word chair, for example. It could be the person is chairing the meeting. They could be sitting on the chair. Um, it could be like the name of, for example, I have a research chair, which is a position. Right. Um, so there's lots of variety in the meaning of individual words. So there's also that combinatorial aspect where you, the data atoms are almost meaningless until they're in the combination with one another. Mm -hmm. So text understanding is something that comes into play here too. So the semantics and understanding of the text. So we've been looking at that a little bit, but it's a very, it's still a very open area. A very, it's a, it's a, it's a fun area to work in because I think there's still a lot of interesting challenges. I just want to say one thing. Um, I think that the community in general has been moving away from uh, text visualization as this like idea that we're going to replace reading. And I'm really happy about that. Of course, this is not <laughs> a reading replacement. I don't expect anybody to say, well, I'm going to look at this wordle of my book instead of actually reading the book, right? <laughs> this is not... <laughs> well, some books it's, it's, it could work. <laughs> maybe, maybe for some books it could work. It's true. Um, but... but It's it's not it's not my goal, right? Yeah, so I'm yeah. always advocating that the visualization actually is more of a hypothesis generating tool that might raise some interesting questions, show some interesting patterns. But then I always try, like I work with my group to make sure that we're linking back to the underlying text. So in all of my works, you'll see that you can interactively drill down and get to the source text that relates to the data elements that you're looking at on the visualization to allow somebody to read the, the underlying thing and make their own decision because we don't know, because the computer doesn't know the meaning of the words, for example. Um, we can't we can't make these visualizations in a way that shows something conclusive. Mm -hmm. I mean, a big a, like application of text visualization is also to find the right stuff to read, right? So you, you might have millions of documents, and only a hundred of them are relevant for for you. So you want to, but you don't know the exact theory that would lead you to them, and so you want to, I don't know, somehow no, navigate sure. yeah. navigate this yeah. collection of text, right? Uh, if you don't mind, I'll just jump in and talk a little bit about one of my own projects that relates Absolutely, to that. So, yeah. um, so we did a. So I was in collaboration with uh, several other people last year working on a project in uh, with Twitter data, and in this project we were mining Twitter for misinformation. So we were looking at how can we help somebody discover things like rumors. For example, shark is swimming down the street during Hurricane Katrina, mm -hmm. right? This is not true information. And this this project we called it FluxFlow and. Uh, it went towards exactly that, right? We we don't expect a human analyst to be able to monitor all of Twitter right. or even post Twitter, like post an event like Hurricane Katrina or the bot. We also looked at the, the bombings in Boston um, for the Boston Marathon. We can't expect somebody to mine that information and read all of it, but we also can't trust an algorithm to automatically detect what is a rumor. So we applied a classifier to allow us to 
pick out ones that we thought might be rumors. Mm -hmm. And then a human annotator could triage that information and look through it and use the kinds of annotations and visualizations that we made to try and see why does the algorithm think it's a rumor and then investigate more deeply. So for example, maybe people are retweeting it who don't normally retweet that kind of information, or it's flowing in a pattern of retweeting that's unusual, or it has language that's not usual for that geographic area. So lots of different uh, cues that we use to detect what might be a rumor, mm -hmm. but then the visualization becomes that sort of semi-automated piece that the person can use to clarify whether or not they, you know, it is in fact a rumor or not. And we were able to show that uh, we could improve upon the performance in that sort of classification of rumors task uh, above what's possible from an automatic standpoint uh, without having the person have to read all of the information. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting area of research in my point of view. That is not only it's not exclusively interesting in the area of text analytics. I think there is generally interesting problem of how do you actually mix together automated methods and algorithms with visualization. And uh, I think you might also, you might argue that if you can automate something, well, you should try to automate it because you don't want people to be involved, right? Sure. Um, so would you actually say that the goal of, visualization or visual analytics in this case is to kind of like transition these systems to um, semi-automated to automated kind of systems? Or you think that there will always be um, the need to include a human in the loop? Well, I, I, I'm not willing to say always because that kind of statement always makes people <laughs> incorrect in the long run. <laughs> but for now, for the foreseeable future, I think a human in the loop is what I see. And uh, I think we're in this phase of transition. We we have these buzzwords. I'm sure you talk about it on your episodes quite often, the big data, right? Um, we're moving towards it. Uh, we're already in it, I would say, actually, a place where information visualization is no longer able to really provide a clear overview. Apologies to Ben Schneiderman, you know, overview first, <laughs> zoom and filter. It's great, but the overview has to be well-designed. And in this case, our overview is not an overview of all of Twitter with relation to Hurricane Katrina. Mm -hmm. Our visualization is an overview of the things that our underlying algorithm picked out as being important with relation to Hurricane Katrina in Twitter, right? So it's still a well-designed overview. You're still really starting with a high-level picture, but that high-level picture has, I think more and more, is going to have to have some uh, back-end on it to try and curate the view to create something that's uh, that's approachable, because the, frankly, the overview is simply just too high level. It would be like looking at the Earth, you know, on Google Maps and trying <laughs> to find your local restaurant. It's just too far away because there's too much information to fit into that overview. Right. So, so, so in, thematically, in my group, and we just recently got a, a grant to look into this area, is looking at what we call like what we're calling uh, analytic guidance and. Uh, and curated views. So taking large amounts of text data and trying to first pick out what's important and then show it. But also, interestingly, from a design point of view, try and reveal why the underlying algorithm thinks that this is an important place for you to look. Yeah. And also, what's the confidence of the underlying algorithm in Absolutely. deciding that this mm -hmm. might be an because we don't want because we want to be transparent about the decisions that are being made so that we're not biasing people or making them think that this is like 100% important. And what is misinformation or not is is a very complex question, right? Very so, complex. You know, question. it's um, yeah. that th that definitely needs some some editorial um, you know insights and, and debate maybe and and so on. So, For, of course, yeah. of course, and also like uh, we want to be able to build. Tr so I think one of the interesting I'm jumping ahead a little bit to thinking about challenges in the field, but text visualization 
I work with digital humanities scholars, for example, or you might, and I've also worked with legal scholars. There's a trust issue, right? Uh, when you're applying algorithms like topic modeling, you take uh, 500,000 documents and you throw them into the system, and then you get a visualization back out that says, here are the topics. It's very hard to explain to somebody how that happened, hmm. right? We can get into the math of it, but it's very hard to explain to an end user. Frankly, the person who designs the algorithm can't really explain the details of how it happened other than how the algorithm works, right? Because if we could do it manually, we would do it manually. We, we apply these <laughs> algorithms because we're not able to. So there's a trust issue there, which I think can be addressed some in some ways by trying to design visualizations, which expose a little bit of the reasoning behind the, the ways that the system is making its decisions. So for example, in the Twitter one, we showed uh, was it unusual words or was it unusual user characteristics that caused this to be flagged as being an unusual tweet. Um, and I, I think that's an interesting area of future work as well, is the building trust with the end users. Yeah, no, I think that's a very, very important area of research. And I expect this to be one of the main uh, topics for our research in the, in the next years. In a way, you can see the Visual Analytics Conference as the place where this kind of research is published, right, Chris? Mm -hmm, for sure, yeah. That's, uh, you know, I've been... Um, really impressed by the progress of the Visual Analytics Conference and uh, the quality of the work there. It's been really fun to see the amount of growth in this area of text visualization over the last uh, 10 years since I started in this field. Can I do a quick plug for the probing uh, probing pro projections thesis? So it's from Potsdam. It just came out. And uh, the guy, Juli uh, Julian Stanke, he also has a paper at, uh, at WIS coming up. And he was investigating exactly this, like how do, like when you have a multidimensional data set and you're projected on 2D, like how does that work exactly? And what is the wiggle room there? And, you know, how could it be different in a different parameter setting or something? Mm -hmm. And so he, he actually visualizes all these, like, um, these individual, like, slices of data um, that make up that larger projection and tries to open up that black box a bit more. And I think that mm -hmm. goes in a very similar direction. We can. I make, think this is really important, yeah. really important work. I did see the no notice about that one yesterday on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, I'm really interested in all of these types of approaches that help people expose, especially things like multidimensional projection or topic modeling in the linguistics point of view. These black box algorithms, uh, I did a project a few years ago uh, where we looked at exposing the confidence that uh, machine translation has in the translations that it suggests um, with visualization. And I've got actually a collaboration with uh, Daniel Kai, Mountain Constance, and his student, uh, PhD student, Menel Asaday, and we're looking at sort of investigating the underlying aspects of topic modeling and how we can expose that to make it something that people can understand a little bit better. So really, I'm happy to see that that lots of great works like the one out of Potsdam are coming out now because I think it's all of these parameter-based algorithms that feed into visualization are so confusing for end users to understand what's going on. Right. Uh, and I think it's a great design challenge to try and figure out ways to expose that in a way that's approachable and understandable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe we, exactly, as you say, need to educate the end users actually about machine learning in order to make some progress. Actually, you know, that, I mean, that sounds yeah. like quite, quite a challenge. And Very challenging. <laughs> I mean, we, but maybe that's actually the way to go. I think that's an Maybe that's part. another episode, but there's a whole lot of discussion happening right now about visual literacy. I mean, uh, the coming up the in December, mid-December. Yeah, right. Okay, great. <laughs> people, people don't even know how to read a bar graph. So, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a, that's not fair. That's an overgeneralization, but, uh, but, I think we need to be aware of the audience, and uh, mm -hmm. and I think it's an interesting issue in terms of how do we help people to see it. Of course, the people that I'm working with generally 
are, are willing to take some time to have some training about how to use uh, a visualization system because they might be using it for a period of time, right? So yeah. Yeah. the trust issue, I've experienced exactly the same problem many, many times myself whenever I collaborate with uh, some domain experts. And what is interesting is that most of the time, these experts are very well-trained scientists and still, and they understand the methods quite well. And still they have problems in terms of trusting the output of certain algorithms. So I think- Enrico, like, I know how algorithms work. So sometimes I have problems trusting. <laughs> yeah, right? absolutely. Of course. You put a plus one instead of a minus one and you get totally <laughs> different results. Yeah, absolutely. So, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm always encouraging my, my, my group to make sure that we're using data that we know well and doing sanity tests on uh, the outcomes of yeah. these algorithms to make sure that we know, at least for the known data, that we're getting stuff that makes sense before we throw unknown data into yeah. it. Sure. Can we talk about a few more of your projects so people get a sense of um, what you're working on and what the, the whole the breadth of that space really is? And what a text visualization actually is. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, okay, so I started off, this is an older project, but it's available for people to play with online if they want. Uh, it's called DocuBurst, so D-O-C-U-B-U-R-S-T, you can just Google it. Um, and uh, here we were looking at that problem of the words in the language, you throw them into something like a tag cloud, and they're just sort of splatted onto the screen in a random al alignment, and you don't really know where, uh, you know, words that are associated with each other don't appear on the screen next to each other. So what we tried to do here was take an underlying structure of the language based on its meaning and create a graphic that shows the contents of a text based on the organization of the words based on their meaning. So all of the things that have to do with animals will appear in one branch. So you'll see, you know, there are lots of different animal words mm -hmm. in this text. Uh, and then we took that and again, we linked it to the underlying um, text so you could drill down. So you can click a node that says dog and you can see all of the places where dog occurs in the book, but not just dog, but all of the dog related words, right? So all the different types of dogs will also be highlighted. So it's a, it's a way of generalizing something like a tag cloud or word cloud up to higher levels of semantic generalization. So that project was, was interesting. We, we designed that for uh, doing what's called distant reading. Um, so Franco Moretti wrote this great book, Graphs, Maps, and Trees, uh, which really was inspirational to me, um, looking at how can we take long texts and allow people to see quickly some high-level patterns within those texts. And uh, this particular DocuBurst project was designed for that. But it was interesting to see that people will co-opt it and use it for other things, right? So I had law enforcement agencies coming to me saying, can we use this for looking at, you know, email databases? Mm -hmm. uh, people, teachers saying this, the visualization itself of the structure of language is useful for helping people learn how to uh, understand English vocabulary. So it's sort of been fun. Uh, that's been a long, long-term project. That that one's been ongoing since 2007 and it's still still live and we're still actually monitoring its use online. So. And what's the, the ontology behind it? Like how do you determine what is part of which category? Oh, sure. Yeah. So in, in the technology there is pretty simple. We do part of speech tagging. So we pick out uh, the nouns. Um, we also recently we've added so we can pick out the proper nouns. So the names of people and places, mm -hmm. those don't fit into the sort of meaning structure of language. So we have those actually on the side as a separate view, but the regular nouns in the language, we categorize them based on a data set data source called WordNet. Mm -hmm. And it organizes nouns based on a relationship called hyponymy, but essentially it means uh, the is a relationship. So chair is a type of furniture. Furniture is a type of household object. Um, 
and that's the structure. So from the middle going outward, when you look at it, you'll see the more general term in the middle, and then the branches of the tree moving outward get more and more specific, and then the most specific words occur around the edge. Right, right. And the chair, like, how do you know if it's not the department chair? Well, we don't. <laughs> don't. We don't. And that's a very good question. So you count them for both or for either yeah, of them? Yeah, we, we really struggle with that decision. Um, luckily for us, WordNet is designed It's manually designed by lexicographers, so there's some uh, professional curation happening behind the scenes there. Mm -hmm. And they rank the meanings of words based on their frequency of occurrence. Ah. So we actually use uh, um, that ranking to divide the contribution of the word by its rank. Okay. So the mm -hmm. lower down in the ranking list it is, the less contribution it gets for that meaning of the word right, in the structure. Right, right. And then we're pretty secure in our part of speech tagging. So things like chair, you know, chair the... A verb, I chaired the meeting, chair this thing I sit in, that's pretty well disambiguated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so even if you have a financial text, it will still count bank partly as river bank as well. Like, Unfortunately, yeah, yes, yeah. but uh, that's a perfect area of future research. I mean, one of the problems there, I think, is that WordNet is a wonderful resource and we use it a lot in the lab, but it's very fine-grained in its meanings. Mm -hmm. So, for example, for bank, it has bank the financial institution, and also bank the building the financial institution is housed in. <laughs> so can you imagine trying to automatically disambiguate this? Yeah. It, it's just not... Oh, it's not fun. It's not possible. Yeah. So, <laughs> Yeah, I see. But I mean, these are the things. Like once you know that, you can work with that. In interpreting sure. the, the structures you get, you, you just have to know about that, right? It's, it's right. A, a fine example of... You need to understand a bit how the sausage is made in that area. Mm -hmm. because. Well, it's, it holds back a little, a little bit the applicability of some of these tools. So, mm -hmm. for example, like uh, we've been doing a little bit on sentiment analysis, but not a lot. And approaches that use sort of word counting for sentiment analysis are notoriously bad because they count an occurrence of a word that might sound happy as being happy no matter when it occurs, right? right. And it might occur in a, in, a, in a negation, but if they don't do... Uh, parsing to dis to distinguish that, then you actually end up counting it as being a negative, a positive thing. So you might say like, I'm not very happy about the service I received at that restaurant. Right, yeah. And they just say, oh, that person was very happy, right? So uh, so there's some nuance and, and sort of gets towards language understanding that has to happen in order to make the visualization actually correct. And for the most part, we hope that it all sort of comes out in the wash when we use a lot of data and throw it at the algorithms. But in some cases, like sentiment analysis, it really it doesn't work out. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I think more sophistication is need, is needed. Nice. Yeah. yeah. I just saw you can try out DocuBurst online, so I'll totally do that. Yes. With yeah. My for sure. Upload your own document. Something like this. Yeah. <laughs> cool. um, we've got a bunch of stuff you can try out online. So the last couple of years, we've had some really interesting work looking at semantic patterns of words in passwords. Mm -hmm. So this this work has been a lot of fun. We've had uh, it was we had some uptake. Actually, we participated with the New York Times Magazine on an article called "The Secret Language of Passwords." Um, we we've been looking at it from a security point of view. So if you have, you know, you've heard I'm sure about lots of databases of leaked passwords. Unfortunately, websites that were hacked and passwords were were released online or hashes of passwords were released online. So we've been taking those. Uh, now, unfortunately, open databases and investigating them with my uh, security researcher colleague, Julie Thorpe. We've been looking at what are the patterns in there. So we often see, you know, rules around passwords don't use, you know, it has to be this long. You must use a number and a special character or whatever. But if somebody always writes, I love you, one, two, three, exclamation point, it, ca it covers those categories. But if it's the most common password online, then it's not a secure password because if somebody right. knows that, they'll just guess it. Yeah. 
So we've been looking, you, you can go online and see lots of uh, lists of the most common passwords, but we've been breaking it down and instead looking at the most common components of passwords and the way that those components combine. So for example, the I love you, we would combine it, we would break it down into I love you, and we would even go higher level within that and say that love is a verb, and it's a verb of emotion. Um, so we've, we've classified uh, millions and millions of passwords That's based on yeah. uh, breaking it down into the components and then parsing that and looking at the patterns that fall out of there. So uh, what are the combinations of semantic categories? And we've seen some really, like from a sociolinguistic point of view, we've seen some interesting things like uh, people will write things like I love and a name, very common. Don't do it in your password if you want to have a secure password. <laughs> because just to be to, to full disclosure, our paper turned this around and said, okay, well now that we've learned all of this, we can turn it into a guessing algorithm. Sure, right? sure. Um, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, and we published it. So, <laughs> uh, the uh, but but we found interesting things like I love in a male name is four times more common than I love in a female name in passwords. <laughs> uh, so I don't know what that says about society, but uh, it's interesting phenomenon. We found also uh, things like really. Uh, cutesy animals are super popular. So dolphins and uh -huh. butterflies, uh, puppies, cats, of course, cats, uh, not so much spiders. Um, <laughs> actually, the most popular animal word we found that was monkey. And we still, I'd be happy to hear from somebody if they That's have an idea about why. Uh, I was thinking about sports teams, but I, I don't really know of a monkey sports team. So, um, but yeah, so, so we, so we, so in the process of doing that research of understanding the semantic patterns and passwords, we used visualization. So we had two different visualizations. We had one where we looked at, uh, and these are both available online, um, we looked at the patterns of words occurring in passwords as compared to normal language, so standard English. And, uh, and um, we found things like, of course, the word I is very highly common in passwords compared to normal English, but the word love is also extremely common <laughs> um, compared to normal English. Mm -hmm. uh, and then other expected ones like password, of course. Uh, profanity, much more common in passwords than in regular English, yeah. and also more, co more common than people knew given, <laughs> given investigations of passwords to date. Uh -huh. Because the normal way to do this is to bring people into the lab and say, please make up a password or do a crowdsourcing yeah, thing. Oh, yeah, and say, please. Right, and they're embarrassed, right? They won't do it. Um, so in our, in our investigation of these released passwords, we find that there's a lot more profanity and sexuality in the passwords than we expected. Um, the other visualization we made, which you can look at online, is a is an investigation of the date patterns, so the number patterns. Um, oh, okay. and and we found we looked at six to eight digit numbers sure. and how they correspond yeah. to date patterns in the calendar. And we found, of course, that given the expected birthdays of the people who are using the websites, that it's mostly birthdays. Um, but we've also found um, highly occurring uh, holidays and things like that uh, as well. Yeah, it's something you can memorize. It, it looks complex, yeah. but it's easy to memorize and people think it's smart, right? Mm -hmm. Valentine's Day, don't don't use that as your password. <laughs> I'm 24, 12. <laughs> the most, unfortunately, the most common number patterns that looked like dates were actually, I think, people just being lazy and going zero one zero one zero one, ah, okay. right? Which yeah, are yeah, algorithms course, again, yeah. getting at that trust aspect and that ambiguity aspect in the underlying data. Yeah. We look at that and we say, well, is that January first, two thousand? But it's also, you know, you enter your password, like your standard password, monkey. Then the site says. Well, please include a number, and then you go like, ah, monkey one two one two. Right. So, so we're you know with my colleague. This is a, outside of the visualization realm, but we're following up on this to try and think about, given what we know now, how can we help make password creation a little bit easier for people? Right. Sure. Sure. I'm trying to think how many of these mistakes I've I've done in the past. <laughs> oh, let's not get started. Yeah. yeah. 
Is there a good, there are probably good guidelines how, how to, like, is there a good strategy that is like easy to memorize, but the outcomes are complex enough that you don't have a problem? We got to go back to XKCD here, right? <laughs> Everybody goes back there. Um, the correct horse battery staple. If you don't know that one, you should look it up. Uh, I think making things that are long and memorable. Mm -hmm. I, I have a theory, but it's not tested, that things that are a little bit more offbeat and wacky yeah. might be more memorable, but we're investigating that right now, so mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But definitely trying to steer clear of the common things that people say. So if you want to say, like, I love Dan, for example, as your password, you might turn it around and instead say, like, uh, Dan is awesome. Right? Uh -huh, uh -huh. So you can you can do that kind of something uh, more unique, uh, yeah. something that captures the semantics of what you want to say mm -hmm. because there's a human element here, right? With passwords, people are talking about uh, they're, they're creating something that they know they're going to type many times in a day, and they want to be able to uh, type something that's pleasing to them. Hopefully, most of the time, and that's what we've seen, right? People are writing affirmational passwords um, like "I can do it," "I'm great," those kind of things. <laughs> Unfortunately, sometimes we saw things falling out of the out of the visualization that were quite disturbing as well. But hmm. you know, people people uh, denigrating themselves. But but generally <laughs> speaking, the the goal here, I think, is to try and make something that's. Uh, of course, totally random would be the best, but that's not very memorable. So if you want to use words, trying to get away from common patterns. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Chris, this tool would be perfect for hackers, actually. So do you know how many of these patterns that you found were known to hackers? Uh, well, it's hard for us to say what's what's been what's known, I guess, in that community. Mm -hmm. um, but I expect that they weren't. I mean, we have done quite a, a bit of investigation into uh, the type. Like, so for example, we tested our algorithms against uh, sort of the state of the art uh, password guessing tools oh, from the hacker okay. community, yeah. and uh, and we were able to guess passwords, not more passwords, but guess more passwords quickly mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. we're able to we were able to basically now that we've learned this, we can rank our guesses a little bit better. Um, so yeah, you can make like high level statements about this class of passwords is more easily guessed by standard cracking tools. And then, yeah, you know, yeah, you can say exactly. avoid this whole class of passwords. That's, that's sort of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we've been doing, you know, uh, trying to speak about this from the point of view of trying to help people be more secure. Of course, our goal here, we understand the ethical context that we're working in and, uh, Certainly, we don't make available, you know, the guessing tool. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> so this is a great time to take a little break uh, for a word from our sponsor. Data Stories is brought to you by Click, who allow you to explore the hidden relationships within your data that lead to meaningful insights. Let your instincts lead the way to create personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards with ClickSense, which you can download for free at click.de slash data stories. That's qlik.de slash data stories. And there's an interesting virtual event coming up on November 18. And it's an online gathering, so everybody can join. And it will be under the motto, are you seeing the whole story that lives within your data? And uh, we will learn something about the latest BI solutions. So the Click Chief Technology Officer, Anthony Dayton, will present a visual analytics platform overview. So you can learn about ClickView 12, the new ClickSense 2.1 and the new cloud services. Um, there will be a lot of customer insights. So actual people using Click in their business will be sharing their experiences and presentations and demonstrations. And there's loads of networking opportunities. So you can live chat with partners, customers and Click experts. So that uh, will surely be interesting. So thanks again so much for sponsoring the show. You can find out more at click.de slash data stories. 
And now back to the show. So Chris, is there another project you want to talk about? Um, sure. I'll maybe uh, one that one that uh, is a bit uh, newer that I just I'm going to stick to things that people can play with online because they might enjoy that. Uh, we're working on a project that's not yet published, but it's sort of fun. It's a bit out there uh, called Lexichrome. So L E X I C H R O M E, playing with um, uh, you know, lexicography and, and chromatics, so words. And so we're looking at the colors of language is the idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, my student, uh, Chris Kim, has been making this uh, great website where you can upload your own text and investigate the colors that the text evokes. Yeah. And the data set that's behind this comes out of um, a colleague of ours, Seth Mohammed, uh, did a crowdsourcing study where he asked people to, they, they were given a word and the meaning of the word, and then they were asked to choose a color that, that it made them think of. Ah, that's brilliant. And uh, ah. so, of course, we think of uh, uh, green, you know, people will think of money, especially in the United States. Yeah. Uh, jealousy, also green. Um, ocean, blue, those kind of things. Uh, love, red. So, uh, and then some interesting ones that we you might not expect. So, um, we looked at the agreement between the people participating in the crowdsourcing study about what color a word evokes, and the visualization shows both from a language. So there are five sort, four sort of movements in the visualization. So one of them shows the the language as a whole, and you can look at the words that are most closely associated with colors, and then you can go across and look again at like a thesaurus view, so you can see branches of the language and how. Um, they are associated with colors. So you'll see the green branch popping up. It's actually, it look you might think of it as plants, but it's actually uh, words like envy and jealousy and, and wealth. Um, <laughs> uh, and then uh, the, the, the other movement is you can look at, um, you can upload a text and look at its chromatic fingerprint, we call it, um, based on the uh, words in that text. And you can compare different texts together. So you upload Edgar Allan Poe, you get a lot of dark black, gray, white, yeah, yeah. Um, and you upload something that's a little bit more, uh, fun or uh, or um, just light, lighthearted. This is a sense of like yeah. how far yeah. this goes. So I'm looking at yellow, and it says cowardly <laughs> nugget banana buttery citrine. I don't know what that means. Glowing jaundice lantern. So it's it's you know for any type of saxophone. So <laughs> that's true. It's like, you know, yeah, yeah, I love this. Like it's, it's synesthesia. Yeah, yeah, right? it's interesting. Yeah. Some of them are pretty obvious, but some others you just don't know where it's they come from. It's so or, much. Yeah, it's really yeah. interesting. I'm, I'm looking at blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have paternity. Uh, what <laughs> so what I want to draw draw your attention to there is the fact, just to sort of cycle back a little bit to our discussion of trust. Uh, we've tried in this visualization to show the level of agreement. Yeah. Um, that the community had about a particular word's association with a color. So in the in the view that's just the color blocks, you'll see these bar graphs behind the word that show the amount of agreement. Oh, and then if you hover yeah. on that, you'll get a tooltip that pops up that shows the other colors that people associated right, with right. that with mm, that word. Very nice. Yeah. So hopefully to be seen soon in a publication. But yeah. <laughs> so what what could you do with it? So you can recognize texts, I guess. You can maybe recognize texts that have a similar emotional or yeah visual content yeah i mean it's people have done emotional content before we're really thinking about this it's funny how you jump there because i also think of the color as having an emotional component right right but it really is the underlying study was really about color component not emotional component um 
we're interested in it from the point of view of maybe authors, mm-hmm. uh, people maybe in advertising, for example, um, thinking about the current context here in Canada, like political campaigning, thinking uh-huh. about that. You know, how how can you tone your message to make sure that you're not, you know, Coke is not putting out its brand manifesto that evokes the color of blue in everybody's mind, right? Yeah. Um, it's interesting. So you could have it in a text editor, like in, and you go like you read read your text and like ah, it's so yellow. I should add, <laughs> add something green here. You know? Well, you know that's that's, that's actually we, we went out and did we talked to some we talked to some people we talked to some authors and they mm-hmm. and they actually said that 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 could potentially be useful. Mm-hmm. The ability to even have a suggestion too to swap out a word to make it uh, a synonym that might have a better color association for <laughs> exactly, them. Exactly. So, yeah. so you know, I mean, do you know the software IA Writer? So it's a simple markdown text editor. Mm-hmm. But what they do is for editing your text, they let you highlight the adjectives, nouns, and verbs. Right. Just, just yeah. so you can examine your writing style and see, like you know, you know, usually like too many adjectives is not great and. Or to just look at the adjectives in isolation, spots, repetitions, you know, everybody has their habits and is getting lazy mm-hmm. and, and it can be so good to mix up things a bit when you write a text. And I think that would be brilliant to have a plugin like for the for the colors in the text. Editor. I think that would be great. I think there's a whole bunch of different visualization tools that could work that way. Yeah. So we've been talking about uh, like my work. I just, I don't want to. So apologies to my colleagues if I'm not talking about your work too much, but there's uh, there's one that I wanted to call out, which is called Literature Fingerprinting, which was really inspirational to me. It came out of the University of Constance and Daniela Oka's work uh, with Daniel Keim. And they looked at uh, things like the, the first paper, they looked at document similarity from the point of view of creating these uh, fingerprint views that mm-hmm. would show you one document versus another. But one of the applications that they applied, which makes me think of what you were just talking about, Moritz, is... Uh, the ability to look at your document and see like what parts of your text are actually difficult to read. So mm-hmm. looking at the readability of your document mm-hmm. or things like repetition in your document and allow you to go back then and edit your text based on um, what you see in the visualization. So this could be really useful if you know your target audience. I know for me, trying to make sometimes uh, communications that are addressable to a general audience, not a computer science audience, this kind of a tool would be very useful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that Daniela created such tool some some time ago. That was yeah, yeah, on, yeah. on readability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was interesting as well. Yeah, there was a follow-up paper from the literature fingerprinting. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So just in case somebody wants to get started in this area, like sounds all super fantastic, good idea for a text editor plugin. Uh, what what do you think? Like what's the best route into it? Like if you're just generally interested but you don't know how to get started. Are there any cool tools around or libraries or what should they read? Like what's, what's a good crash course in, in text database? I would, I would start with the text visualization browser by the ISOVIS group. Mm-hmm. Um, so their website catalogs hundreds of text visualizations um, across different kinds of dimensions. So what types of tasks do they support? Yeah. What types of data sources are they bringing in? Nice. Yeah. That's a really inspirational place to get ideas and and uh, maybe get anti ideas to see what's not working, um, or what has so been done I, a million times, or what has someone. been done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and you'll see uh, a bunch of works from the people I've been discussing, as well as my own stuff in there. Um, that would be a good place to start. It's not going to teach you, of course, how to do text visualization, but it might give you some inspiration. Uh, I think getting some understanding of some of the underlying. NLP, natural language processing tools, is, is definitely important. Um, not that you have to learn how to innovate and make new tools, but mm-hmm. how to use the existing ones. And the ones that we make most use of here in my group are things like the Stanford NLP Toolkit. Uh, we use one from, uh, NL, it's called NLTK. It's a Python toolkit, natural mm-hmm. language toolkit. 
Uh, of course, WordNet, which we already mentioned. Um, those are the main ones that that we're making use of. And then uh, things like, so Stanford NLP tools, for example, will do part of speech tagging. It will do parsing and tell you something about the structure of the sentence. So I think that will get you from the level of just making word clouds into having some additional sophistication that allows for some more variety of approaches. Mm-hmm. And then we can, you know, of course, D3 um, is the one that we're making a lot of use of now in the group uh, in terms of visualization toolkits to create um, things. And then we make also, if you're looking for data sources, there are lots of places to get data. So Twitter, of course, has an API where you can gather stuff. Wikipedia is available. Dictionaries like Webster's. Um, we also make use of uh, open libraries of texts. So, for example, Project Gutenberg, where you have all of the out of print or sorry, out of copyright um, mm-hmm. novels, mm-hmm. Uh, where you can gather. And those are those are all free. So, so those are good places to start. WordNet's free and as I well. I think visualizing literature and also dramatic plays. It's something I just can't get tired of i i know I've, you know it's been done so often but i love these projects that i don't know take apart shakespeare or look at the structure of fairy tales you know i, I sure, just yeah. love these these types of projects i think also um like I, i i like projects that look at um text that has something some element of civic engagement mm-hmm. like from a so, sort of my own personal uh Things that I like, I, things that look at the you know the State of the Union address in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Those some great visualizations from the New York Times there about that. Uh, projects that look at argumentation in parliament parliamentary debate or legal issues, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Those data sets are generally also freely available. That's true. Yeah, so great place to annotated start. maybe in some form. Yeah, and some yeah very know? cleaned up and yeah, annotated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How about like when you work with social media data? You often have the exact opposite. It's just a bunch of words misspelled. Uh, like, <laughs> what, what's the what's the best approach? That There, like many people will probably want to do some some Twitter topic analysis or you know things like this. So, but yeah, I mean Twitter has a special challenge in that, like you said, things might be misspelled. Um, words are used in creative and playful ways. We have uh, very little signal, so each each tweet is only 140 characters yeah. long. So it's an interesting challenge. But then there's a high volume and a high rate of speed of of arriving data. I don't know if I have specific advice about that. I mean, there's some great tools for it. So we, what we've done in the past is look at snapshots, right? So we're taking um, all the tweets from a particular amount of time and, and, and throwing them into a database and then looking at them deeply. We had another project called Sentiment State. I, I, it was just an undergraduate project. It, it, we were looking at uh, Twitter and you could, It was sentiment analysis on Twitter, and it, it I don't I didn't really want to plug it because it's got that problem that I mentioned in the beginning where we're just counting the words. Yeah, it's hard. so the actual yeah. actual emotion ratings are not super. Con- we're not very confident in them, mm-hmm. but it's so so easy though to hook up to Twitter's API and just grab tweets for a particular user or a particular keyword. So, so I mean, it's not really that's I don't think that's the barrier. I think the barrier is what do you do with that text once you have it, right. and how do you understand what's in it, and. Uh, I don't. I don't know the the answer to that, mm-hmm. unfortunately, because mm-hmm. that's that's the challenge. Yeah. Chris, can you describe what are the most common kind of pre-processing operation that one has to do for before texts can be visualized? Actually. Yeah. Sure. So we do. There's a bunch of things that that we'll we'll do. Of course. Uh, Depending on the type of document you're loading in, we might you might have to do some detection of metadata fields. Uh, so who's the author? What's the date of the document? Those kind of things. Once you have, uh, if you have free text like the text of a novel, um, 
probably you're going to want to pass it through a part of speech tagger to know what are the nouns, the verbs, the adjectives. Um, maybe a parser if you want to do things like uh, uh, correcting the negations is a simple one. Mm-hmm. Um, It basically means understanding grammar, like right? Not yeah, just understand, words, sorry, but yeah, understanding how how text is structured grammatically, and the relationships between words as well. So, mm-hmm. for example, so there's a there's one you can use called the Stanford Dependency Parser, which is available online, and you can then look at uh, what 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 noun is the adjective describing, right? In in, in a sentence, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, which is important. Um, People will sometimes, and we, I'm cautious about this, but do a technique called stop word removal. So removing words that are not considered to be con- contentful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I say I'm, con- I'm conscious about it because uh, sometimes it's, for example, if you're doing uh, an analysis that has to do with author style, the use of words like the, of, mm-hmm. and yeah. can actually be very distinctive for a particular author. But if that's, but if you're doing a content analysis, then probably you want to remove those things. So those are the pre- pre-processing steps. Um, If, even when we remove stop words, we keep all the original data. We just sort of flag them as being removed. Sure. Yeah. Um, counting the words. Uh, I prefer to do a, a, a counting of the words with comparison to a, a corpus. So, for example, instead of just counting the words, we'll look at counting the words with relation to something called the, the corpus of contemporary American English. Mm-hmm. So how does the how, depending on what the te- te- texts are looking at an appropriate comparison corpus and trying to see what distinguishes these documents from normal english i find that really interesting as a way to pull out the important keywords instead of just the frequent words um, yeah. so if i understand you right it really depends a lot on what you actually want to do yeah i guess right? so i mean so it's a bit like well how do we visualize the weather yeah it depends on you know <laughs> Yeah, what depends on your in and how you yeah, could measure that. Like, what's the sensing apparatus, you know, that delivers something uh, that you can then visualize, and that seems mm-hmm. to be the most, the crucial decision, right? Like, mm-hmm. what are we actually looking into here? Yeah, what's the task? What's the comparison mm-hmm. uh, that you're trying to make? What What is your question really? Yeah, uh, because if you're interested in like the types of words that somebody says, then you'll have to do a different thing than if you're interested in the topics and overall corpus of documents so it's yeah it really does matter what what the topic is we so for example we have one where we're looking now i'm tipping my hat a little bit but we're looking at i'll just say briefly we're looking at the words the, the place words in documents ah, interesting. Mm-hmm. so so the locations uh so that's a specific application where we had to try and find a geo geo visualization like a geo parser basically to try and yeah. pull out place mm-hmm. names um, so it really does depend on the task, but luckily uh, we didn't have to design a, a parser to pull out place names from a text that exists. Uh, so uh, really, uh, the la- that has really changed since I started in my career. Uh, the availability of open tools for lots of specialized text parsing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have to say I- I've been doing some text visualization work recently, and I've been struggling quite a lot with the whole idea of extracting interesting keywords. And trying to define exactly what a keyword is, I think especially in terms of uh, frequency doesn't doesn't seem to work extremely well. And uh, <laughs> so I see two common problems that I'm always stuck with. One is that frequency doesn't seem to work really well, uh, even after a stop word uh, removal. And second, that single words uh, very often don't seem to be very meaningful. So, do mm. you have any recommendations there? That's a very a very astute observation. Uh, yeah, I I was telling you guys earlier. I have um, 
a set of slides that I use if I give a talk that say like, these are the grand challenges in, in text visualization. And one of them I have is actually this problem of one word doesn't capture it, right? So how do you determine if it's a single word or if it's a multi-word colloquette, we call it like, so words that are combinationally put together. Mm. One of the things that I've always wanted to see in, in things like word clouds is the ability to have longer, like sometimes one word, sometimes two words, depending right, right. on the context of the appearance. Uh, there are Usually ways you to have detect- to decide, right? In the yeah, tools, you have to you decide, use, but there are- it's one word or it's two words combined or three words, but you don't get the most plausible combination, right? Right. Yeah. Right. And, but there nice. are ways to detect that, right? There yeah. are ways to detect common collocations, we call them. So sure, sure. things like uh, there's a technique called engram model, which looks at how frequent mm-hmm. do words occur together. Of course. Um, what I, what, the first question, I've forgotten what you said. Uh, I just said that just using frequency doesn't work, right? Oh, frequency, even, yeah. So, of course. Even, sorry for interrupting, even yeah, no. just using plain TF-IDF, it's probably the common way of coming up with what is uh, relevant words for a document or bunch of documents or any segmentation that you have of a document collection. Doesn't mm-hmm. seem to work extremely well in many cases. Well, I was going to mention TFIDF, so (laughs) maybe I won't. Um, But I remember you have a different technique in one of your papers. Yeah, yeah. In the in the parallel tag clouds paper, we used a technique called the Dunning log likelihood measure. So we were so it goes back to looking at comparison corpus. So it's like a version of TFIDF, but we're looking at instead of. Um, scoring the words based on their occurrence within a document with relation to other documents in the collection. We're looking at a comparison collection. So, for example, uh, we used a, a, it was, we were looking at court cases. And for an individual court case, we had two comparisons. We had the comparison of the other court cases in the collection, but we also had a comparison of the um, English language as a whole. And there we're looking at a statistical measure that says, how likely is it that the frequency of the occurrence of this word that we're seeing in this document is not random, mm-hmm. right? So that, that the difference, sorry, the difference between the frequency of it in this document versus the regular language is not random. So in the passwords case, we use this. We have the word love. It occurs a lot in the passwords. But if it occurs a lot in regular English, then it's not interesting to us. So we look at it as a comparison and we say, okay, well, it occurs twice as often in passwords than it does in regular documents. And then the measure is able to tell us what's the likelihood that that is by chance. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that's one that I like. It's, it's very like easy to calculate. significant difference. Could you say that? Yeah, it's like a chi-squared measure. It's like a significant mm-hmm. difference yeah. measure. Yeah. Um, and it, it's a very easy one to calculate. Uh, mm-hmm. So so it's uh, easy to understand what it's doing. It's an expectation measure, basically. So you're saying, you know, given this much text, if it was normal English, I would expect to see the word love five times. If I see it 30 times, then maybe something interesting is going on here. It might be a love letter. <laughs> might be a love letter. So yeah. where do you get the, fre- the frequency, the, the baseline from? So I'm, yeah, so I'm using... Uh, there are lots of open corpora that you can get. So, for example, okay. there's one called the British National Corpus, BNC. Okay. Um, in our work, we're using one called the Corpus of Contemporary American English. There's also one called the Corpus of Historical American English. And these are supposed, these are designed corpora, corpora they're not free, unfortunately, that you can purchase that are used for, uh, that are curated to have a general overview of the language. So they have news stories, they have novels, they have personal letters, all of these different genres of text are thrown in there together to try and give a capture of the language as a whole. Nice. So is there anything else that a person who wants to start doing text visualization needs to know or other references that you want to mention? Um, Let's see. No, I don't. 
think so. I mean, I think right now exploring what's out there already, focusing on what is the uh, the problem at hand and, and targeting that. Uh, I think not trying to replace reading, linking to the underlying text. These are sort of my mantras in some ways that I, that I always bring into the design of visualizations that I'm working with in my lab. Um, do you need to be able to code really well to do text analysis? So there don't seem to be that many UI tools to where you can just drag and drop a text and then get interesting patterns out, right? So yeah, no, there 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 aren't. Um, you know, there are tools like the open um, websites that I've just talked about my own stuff, where you can the upload your own text. Docuverse, Lexichrome, yeah. you can mm -hmm. upload your own text to those. Mm -hmm. uh, there are lots of digital humanities tools around. So, for example, there's one called uh, Tapor Text Analysis. Uh, portal for research, mm -hmm. uh, and that that one allows you to upload your own text and, and look at it. Uh, there, are, there, there's a movement towards uh, fragmentation of the community in a way that I think is really interesting. Where instead of looking, I mean, no offense to Wordle, it was influential, very important word cloud uh, visualization, but Wordle was for everybody, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it, in some ways it ended up being for everybody, but also for nobody when it came to like what it's actually useful <laughs> for. Um, yeah, yeah, but it, I mean. To be fair, I mean it's it's the most popular text visualization ever, so it's it was an amazing project. But right, right. but I like the movement towards specialized work, so visualizations mm -hmm. for a particular area. Like I talked about the passwords research, um, visualizations that are designed for journalism is a big area right now. So mm -hmm. computational journalism, of course, journalists deal with a lot of you know WikiLeaks, this kind of thing where you have a lot of documents that appear all at once. How do you triage those documents and find interesting things? This is where text visualization can really be powerful. Um, Uh, That's legal a good studies point because yeah. I mean if you if you say you build a tool where you can drop any text and it will do something, you are limited to fairly like simplistic You're doing stuff, word counting right? and you stuff, don't right? exploit like that it's a court case or that it's a poem, you know, and, and or it's a dialogue, for exactly, example, yeah, or a password. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's that's a that's a great point. That if we ask for these generic tools, we're giving up a lot on the really interesting things you can do on a specific type of challenge, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a fine fine line though because you can argue for for gener generic tools as well. And generic tools is what tends tends to be successful and adopted if you look at what or get people in started the past, in the right? topic. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I think it's a very fine line there. Yeah. Um, I think we still need to find that the, Can the, we right, have both? the right formula. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean we've been moving towards uh Of course, you can transform your data and put it into Tableau or some other, you know, mm -hmm. um, software After uh, the by turning it by turning it into a vector of of numbers, right? And, and look at it that way. Um, I yeah, think it's interesting. Tableau I mean, would expect that you have a small number of features, like you know, yes. you don't want to yes. have like a word vector with millions of <laughs> of columns. In, yeah, or at then least seventy thousand of Tableau. them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So, Chris, um, I would like to conclude talking about a little bit of the future of text visualization and what are the open issues and the main challenges there. Um, I'm sure you have your own ideas and opinions. I do. Um, you know, I'm always looking to the future, right? As a as a professor, it feels like sometimes grant writing is the main job, but yeah, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what, what are the next challenges that are emerging? And for me, I think... There's a few things. So one we've already talked about, which is this idea of building trust, right? The more that we incorporate, the more and more sophisticated 
backend algorithms that are doing things like topic modeling or projections, the, the further we get from the ability for the end user to actually understand what just happened, mm-hmm. right? So bridging that gap to try and make, try and open up that black box of text processing and bring forward uh, what's happening behind the scenes to in an understandable way. I don't know the answer, but it's something that I want to look at for the next few years. Um, uh, what else? Un- uh, uncertainty representation is an interesting one that connects there, right? So if I'm analyzing a document like we did with the lexachrome example and there's some underlying uncertainty in the way that the text has been analyzed the output of that algorithm can we reveal that in the view in a way that's interpretable for somebody who may be making a decision based on what they're looking at on the screen so if we say that uh you know this collection has certain topics in it um, maybe it's good for us to be able to also say this the the amount of confidence that the algorithm has in in that in that topic modeling result um Moritz brought up some really interesting challenges, which are more NLP challenges, but I think as they're solved, they're going to change the way we do visualization. So word sense disambiguation being the big one. How do we understand what the word actually means in the context that it was mentioned? Mm. Um, So sort of getting that deep semantics and incorporating that back into the visualization view. Um, And of course, we're dealing with... uh, high frequency like data arriving all the time things like social anal- social media analysis so i think from a visual analytics point of view we've got some opportunity here to bring in things like uh, views that know something about what the person looked at yesterday right so mm-hmm. if i'm interested in monitoring what people are saying about my company and uh you know, whether or not they're happy with our customer service today then maybe i don't want to just see the snapshot but i want to see the snapshot where the algorithm knows what view I saw yesterday and what conclusions I made about that view and how does it differ today from what I saw yesterday. So I think that's an interesting opportunity as well, is bringing more user modeling into this area. So that's where I'm interested. Uh, so enriching some of the, the, the backend algorithms to know something about the user, to know something about the text itself, um, and something about the, the confidence in the processing that's happening behind the scenes. And then achieve all this without making it so complicated that nobody can understand the visualization. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite a a challenge. Which I think it's a big challenge. I mean, honestly, I think we as a a community don't have a good history of making visualizations um, extremely easy to parse. I think we've been, there are lots of visualizations out there uh, that have been published in the past that are particularly complex. And I think complexity doesn't play very well with a lot of people. I always get this this kind of feedback that uh, this is just too much. I just mm-hmm. I think there are I have a theory that there are people who have an kind of like personal trait that scares them when you see too much information at once. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not true for everyone, but it happens to me very often when I try to show one of those high density visualizations. They are they are totally scared. It's kind of like, hey, it's just too much for me. I mean, I don't want to even start looking at it. Right? <laughs> Did you ever notice that? Oh, definitely. Uh, you know, I'm guilty of it too. I'm sure if some oh if yeah, you're myself too. Read, yeah. read through my uh, you know repository of work online. We try and simplify. We try to edit. Uh, that's again going back to like that idea of these curated views and helping people get started in a in a visualization by telling them some interesting places to look first, um, rather than showing everything all at once. Um, but I think again, you know, yes, general tools are likely the most successful and popular, but there are there is still a place for complexity and things that might require training and expertise. So, for example, if I'm doing a specific project looking at 
people who do poetics, right? Poetry analysis mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily have to be a walk up and use visualization that somebody can just open their web browser and look at, right? I'm okay with it requiring a little bit of training and a little bit of expertise to understand. Uh, it just depends on what the goal is. So if the goal is everybody can use it, then then that's an interesting design challenge that I think uh, I agree with you. Uh, some of the complexity that's published in our community in particular uh, is too much for the general audience. And I'm inspired by groups like I already mentioned, the New York Times, who are able to make things that a general readership can can use. And I, and I ask my students to read, to look at the New York Times collections of visualizations and be inspired by them, um, because I think there's a lot for us to learn in the research community about the way to present things in a simplified manner. Well, Man, now I feel like visualizing this episode. And Eiko, we, we should get a transcript I, and put it out I as a challenge. So, as we've been speaking, I already thought of it. I was like, I'm getting one of my students, sorry, students, to transcribe this and we're going to make a visualization of it. So, yeah, you know, yeah. we've been thinking about having transcriptions for a long time. We, maybe we, we should start Maybe it. this is the the point where we should start them. I we, mean, we need a few well, thousand volunteers. Yes, yeah, yeah. crowdsourcing it. A thousand monkeys, they type randomly and... <laughs> Yeah, you know how, you know Look, how it can, works, right? <laughs> I can just run the recordings through a speech recognition system and exactly. we'll see the funny outputs. Yeah. Of, we of just it. use Siri and should be fine. Yeah, <laughs> Let's do that. Let's do that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> cool. I think we have to wrap up. It, it, time passes as usual much faster yeah. when you're recording something. Well, yeah. I just want to say this has been so much fun. I really I enjoy your podcast and uh, it, was a, it was a real treat to be invited. Uh, and I'm so glad uh, to talk to you today. Thanks, Chris, from for coming on the show. That's that's very uh, helpful. I think that people will love this episode because we text visualization is a is a very important topic, and uh, we are, we we've been trying to organize this episode for a very long time. So thanks thanks a lot. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for coming. Thanks. Bye, Chris. Bye. 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 Data Stories is brought to you by Click who allows you to explore the hidden relationships within your data that lead to meaningful insights. Let your instincts lead the way to create personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards with ClickSense, which you can download for free at click.de slash data stories. That's Q-L-I-K dot D-E slash data stories.